Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. First Peter chapter 3. Um, I've shared with you in times past that um, uh, the importance of biblical interpretation of context with respect to biblical interpretation. I'll get my own sermon right, right? But I've shared with you the importance of context with regards to biblical interpretation, and the truth is that context is actually vitally important to every area, every aspect of our lives. Um, we, we ask the question, we ask questions of context all the time. Do you know that? We ask it all the time. If a, if a, um, if a news broadcaster came on and said, uh, I'm just throwing out weird numbers, but if a new news broadcaster came on and said, in 2018, we have had 10 deaths from motor cars, right, from vehicles, okay, 10 vehicle deaths, uh, we would naturally ask a context question. If we're smart, we would ask a context question. We would say, how did that happen? How did that take place? How did those deaths take place? Because without context, we can't make a proper, we can't take proper action. How many of you know that? So if we had 10 deaths due to car accidents, and 9 out of those 10 deaths were because of malfunctioning parts in cars, what would our course of action be? Fix the cars, okay? But if 9 out of 10 of those deaths had to do with... uh, uh, people who were not being faithful in their task of driving, people who were under the influence or whatever, we would take a different course of action. All of that is a context question. All of that is a context question. And so context changes every aspect of life. This is why I encourage you as people of, you know, Americans who vote in elections, everything that's thrown out to you requires you to say, what's the context of those numbers? What's the context of this situation? What's the context? Because without context, you can't fix the real problem. Did you know that? So context is vitally important for us. And I have two examples for you this morning that I think are just really important. One, the first shows uh, the importance of context when it comes to discerning Christian behavior, Christian ethic. And the second one uh, has to do with understanding proper belief. That's when we're going to get to Romans chapter 3. So 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 8 and 9, here's what the text says. It says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Pretty powerful, uh, powerful passage. The to-dos that are listed in Peter's, uh, Peter's two verses here, be harmonious, sympathetic, and the like, they're all clearly good. Amen? They're clearly good. And many uh, of these things might find biblical application, true biblical application, in other areas of our life. We may. We may look at this and say, oh, being sympathetic, it applies also to this. But the context of 1 Peter 3 shows us what Peter means explicitly, what he is actually talking about. Notice the first three words of verse 8. It says, to sum up. 
Underline that in your Bible. To sum up, this is important. It's just like a therefore when you're reading the Bible. Every time you come across the therefore, there's a question you should ask. What's the therefore, therefore? In this situation, he says to sum up. You need to ask the question. To, to sum what up? What, what, are, what are you referring to, right? So everything that Peter says at this point is actually a reiteration of something that he's already communicated. In the first two chapters, Peter is speaking to Christians, and he, is, and he tells Christians to honor governing authorities. Can I get an amen? <laughs> I got more of a laugh, but anyway, so <laughs> we'll use it, right? So, but in the first two chapters, he says that Christians are to honor governing authorities. That's both secular authorities and sacred authorities. There are many levels of governance that God has put over the Christian. Then he begins to talk to servants, okay? And for servants, he says to them that they're to show respect to their masters, can I get it? No. Okay. So they're to show respect to their masters. And here's where it gets really sticky. He says, I want you to show respect to your masters, whether they're worthy of respect or not. And you're like, I don't like that. Right? Nobody likes that. Well, then he gives a subcontext of that. He then goes into this instruction about doing good. Okay? He says, you need to do good as contrasted to doing bad. And he says, in doing good, if you suffer for doing good, you are to patiently endure suffering. Show of hands. How many of you have ever done something good, but you've actually suffered for that good? Okay. What, what the call is, according to Peter, is that you should patiently endure that particular suffering. Now, listen to me very clearly. If you suffer for doing bad, shame on you. <laughs> right? You're reaping what you sow. That's just... Stop being stupid, right? That's my, that's my bumper sticker for you. Anyway, so the point is, he says, if you're doing good and you suffer for it, patiently endure. And then Peter uses Jesus as the example. He says, you want to know somebody who patiently endured suffering for doing good? There's nobody better than Jesus. He went to the cross doing the best good for humanity, and what happened? He bled and died for you and I. He bled and died for his enemies, the people who wanted him there, okay? And so he puts that context in, and then he tells that Jesus is the perfect example. Following that, he begins to talk about husbands and wives. And he says, wives, you have a responsibility. You're supposed to submit to your husbands. Oh, but husbands, you're not out of the, out of the woods. You need to honor your wives. Well, in the context, what would honor your wives look like? Well, if Jesus is the example... Honoring your wife, husbands, means you die. You die for her. You be willing to lay down your life. Most men won't even give up the remote control, let alone their life, right? And so, so you're supposed to lay it down. You give it all. So all of this, amen. Anyway, so submit, woman. No, <laughs> what's good? <laughs> no laughs from the women in this. Anyway, it's fine. I'm, I'm okay. It's okay. Bible still says. No, anyway, so this all sets the stage. You guys are fun today. Okay, so this sets the stage for 1 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9. Let's read it again. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So now, knowing the context and then hearing what Peter says, let me ask you a couple of questions. 
What does the citizen hear when Peter says, I want you to be brotherly or kind-hearted? What does the citizen hear? The citizen hears the, the word Philadelphia, phileo, right? He hears brotherly kind of love that says, listen, whether we agree or disagree on certain policy issues, we're a part of the same thing called America in our case. And so what should you do? As a citizen, you should be brotherly. That doesn't mean that you accept everything that comes down the pike. It means that you're brotherly with them, that you're kind-hearted with them, and so on. You see, what Peter meant has a context that helps us define it very clearly. We don't just get to make this stuff up, okay? What does the, what does the servant hear when Peter says, don't return evil for evil? What's the, what's the servant here? Don't, don't repay evil for evil. Okay, so I'm doing good, and I happen to be suffering for doing good. But two wrongs will never make a right. So my master punishes me. My boss punishes me. Somebody punishes me for doing good. What good would it do me to show vengeance in return? The servant hears, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. I've got to let this go, and I've got to let God do this. What does the husband and wife hear when Peter says, be harmonious, be humble in spirit? What do they hear? Here's what the American husband and wife should hear. Y'all aren't the same. Men are men, women are women. Men have a role and a responsibility. Women have a role and a responsibility. And what's beautiful about it is that when you guys come together God's way, you sing in harmony with one another. It does not say, be in unison with one another. Did you notice that? So you play, a, you play a note, I play a note, and we come together in a harmonious thing. That's a beautiful reality. That comes, that understanding comes because we know the context. That understanding comes because we've actually read everything else. Proper context begins to show us the magnitude of what Peter would be talking about, what any biblical writer would be talking about. If we remove the context, here's the problem. We cheat ourselves out of something very valuable. We cheat ourselves out of that beautiful truth that says, husbands and wives, you're playing a song together that needs to be heard by the world. Please do it in harmony. <laughs> right? That's, that's what we're called to. But we miss out on that if we don't see the context. Another thing that happens if we don't apply context is that we come up with ideas that are unintended by Scripture. For example, if you didn't read the first two chapters of Peter, but you instead jumped right into chapter 3 and you saw the word, be harmonious, you could make an entire doctrine out of this that says, the Bible tells me to live in harmony with even the sinners in the world. You would be taking it, as we say, out of context. You would be applying a biblical phrase in an unbiblical way. This is half the problem in the church. We, we love this on Facebook, okay? And I'm not picking on anybody, right? We love this on Facebook. We love to pick a verse completely out of context and post it on Facebook and be like, ha! And most of the time, I'm just going to venture a prophetic guess in here. It might be a prophetic guess, but <laughs> whatever. But I'm venturing a guess that oftentimes people post those verses as passive-aggressive attacks on something in their life. I just, I have that gut feeling, okay? Listen, unless you're posting from Proverbs, which is a bunch of single things, <laughs> you probably need to at least warn everybody, check the context, 
You need, to, you need to do this. But we love to preach or love to present biblical ideas in unbiblical ways. And it becomes dangerous for us. So take uh, Romans 12, 18, for example. You don't have to turn there. Romans 12, 18 says, If it is possible, insofar as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's a biblical phrase that taken in an unbiblical way says, live and let live. You just, you just have to be right there next to the people of darkness, and you don't have to worry about it. You know what the problem is? The scripture says, what fellowship does light have with darkness? Answer, none. Guess what it also says? It, the scripture also says, not only are you not to participate in the deeds of darkness, but you're also supposed to expose them. Can you say that with me? Expose them. Try living at peace with people when you start exposing the deeds of darkness and sin. You see, the context of the passage says, if it is possible. And when the world tells you to celebrate unrighteousness, it's no longer possible. Do you get it? So it's very clear what happens here. But what we do is we take it out of context and we claim that we're walking like Jesus. Or we claim we're, we're doing what God has said. The perfect example of exposing darkness and walking after the truth and doing things the right way was John the Baptist. Think about it. Do you remember the story of John the Baptist? He exposes Herod for uh, an inappropriate relationship. He's, he's doing something he shouldn't be doing. He says, that woman, that she is not allowed to be your wife. Guess what happens to him for exposing the darkness? His head falls off, okay? So <laughs> this, this is a problem. Welcome to Christianity. Anyway, okay, so, but, but the point is, is that that's, that's the scary part of it. He was fine with living under the rule of Herod, but he was not okay with darkness and sin. So he exposed it and he paid a cost for that. This is exactly what you and I are called to do. So, as you can see, context shapes our understanding, but context also shapes our behavior. Today, as we continue in Romans, and now we're going to go to Romans chapter 3. Today, as we continue in Romans chapter 3, um, we're going to see a passage of Scripture that, uh, of which the context has been mutilated by the church culture today. Okay, It's been mutilated. Many of you know the passage I'm talking about. Many of you know Romans 3, verses 9 through 18. You've heard somebody quote it. You've heard somebody preach from it. Um, but listen, we, we have missed the point in so many ways on this particular passage. So I want, you to, I want you to track with me on this. I hope in our time this morning that I can show you a couple of things. Number one, the context from Romans 3 itself the context from the verse it's in, okay? That is enough context to get the right meaning. But I want to show you the context from Romans 3, and then I want to dive into the context from the Old Testament, which is where every one of these particular phrases comes from. Paul is simply quoting a, a mess of Old Testament passages, and, he is, and he's stating them. The context there proves uh, my point of what we learn here. And then three, we're going to put it all together. So um, just for my own sake, why don't you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we, we love you, Lord, and Father, we also love your word. We ask, Lord, that you would speak, uh, speak to us through your scriptures. 
Father, we know that your word, is, uh, your word is breathed out by you. We know that it is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training and righteousness. And Lord, we want all of those things. We, we as Christians, we want you to do all of those things uh, inside of our hearts. So Lord, we pray for that. We ask, Lord, um, we ask, Lord, that the same spirit that indwells us, the same spirit that inspired these words uh, on these pages would, uh, would begin to reveal truth to us, would begin to open our hearts to what, uh, what you meant, what you uh, intended for us to understand and grow in. Father, we pray all of these things in the mighty, mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So here's Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jew and Greek are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Sounds pretty bleak, right? Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Up to this point, Paul has taught us that we become like what we worship. We learned that in week one, right? Then, throughout chapter 2, we learn that as Christians who worship Jesus, that there's something we're all to know. There's something we should all know. And that is that God is going to judge unrighteousness. And that was Paul, post-resurrection, that told us that. There's a judgment coming. God is going to judge all unrighteousness. Therefore, for us to continue in sin is not only as Christians, as worshipers of God, for us to continue in sin is not only hypocritical, right? But it is also to uh, think poorly, to take for granted the mercy of God. Nobody here in their heart of hearts wants to take for granted the mercy of God. Most of the time when you hear a preacher or somebody say, you should stop sinning or you should knock that off, we, in our mind, we think the only reason is because there's a, system, there's a list of rules that we're supposed to follow and he's being a buzzkill today, so he just doesn't want us to do this. No, 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 no. There's, far deeper, there's a far deeper reason why we should put sin behind us. We are dead to it, according to the scripture. Christ bought us for righteousness' sake, and we are to live for righteousness in view of the immense mercy of the God of the universe. What should be your motivation? Not so your pastor smiles. Your motivation should be so your God smiles. The pastor's motivation should be to make the Heavenly Father smile as well. But your motivation should start and stop with God's plan. It should start and stop with God's view of you. You want to do what he says. That's why, as the uh, prophet from Reading Rainbow said, don't take my word for it. Go ahead and read it yourself and find out. I have no idea what that guy's name is, but he's awesome. Anyway, so nearing the midpoint, there's something wrong in the wiring of my head, but you knew that a long time ago. Nearing the midpoint of chapter two, don't say yeah, Barney. Don't. I was not looking for commentary. Nearing the midpoint of chapter two, Paul goes on, uh, verse 17 specifically, Paul uh, calls, uh, calls out those who, quote, bear the name Jew. 
Uh, you know in a Sunday service when I look at you and I say, okay, dads, I want to talk to you for a second. Or, hey, moms, I want to talk to you for a second. Ladies, I want to talk to you for a second. Or, youth, I want to talk to you. The point is, you, you, you pick out, you know this, you pick out a subgroup and you have a specific message for them. That helps with context. You got to know who you're talking to. And Paul is doing the exact same thing. Who was the letter of Romans written to? Christians, right? It was written to Christians. But here's what many people don't know. Uh, the term Christian wasn't widely used in this day, okay? The term Christian, I don't know whether it was a derogatory term or whether it was just a title, but the Christians were first given that name in Antioch according to the book of Acts. And they were called Christians. Paul doesn't call them Christians. He calls them saints of God, chosen by Christ Jesus, all of those things. That context helps us when we hear Paul say, okay, I want to talk to the Jews here. When he writes a letter to the church and then wants to talk to the Jews, he's referring to Jewish believers in a Messiah. Unless Paul makes a stressful case that he's talking about his people out in the world, the people that he came from, he's talking about Jewish Christians. That's a really important idea. So he addresses Jewish Christians. What he addresses is an issue that stands as one of the central themes of the book of Romans. Okay, so You're a note taker. These are things that you want to write down. But the central theme here is, is specifically that God is not partial. How many of you know that? God is not partial. God is not the God of the Jews only. God wanted to save the whole world. He said through Abraham, the world would be blessed. The nations would be blessed. The plan was to save all mankind. That's what he's doing, okay? And so he, he deals with partiality. Uh, there's a phrase that's repeated in Romans over and over, to the Jew first and then the Greek and also the Greek. That phrase simply means God is impartial. Order does not communicate partiality. Order communicates order. Partiality would be to the Jew and forget the Gentile. That would be partiality. So he says to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. While addressing these Jewish believers, Paul says, Paul speaks of the advantage that the Jew has. And this is important for you to hear me. Hear me out. He says, is there an advantage in being a Jew in being those who received circumcision? Paul's next phrase is fascinating. He says, much in every way. Have you ever read that? Have you ever struggled with that? You're like, hold on a second. I thought he's impartial. I thought, what's the deal? See, see, you guys, if you were raised as a Christian, if you were raised in a Christian household, you actually had an advantage, didn't you? That's a pretty awesome advantage. I grew up, I grew up bypassing a lot of painful situations and scenarios in my life because I was fortunate. I was raised. Now, here's where you have to be, here's where we have to be careful. I had great advantage. Does that make me better than anybody else? No. And this is what Paul is getting at with the Jew. He says, you have much advantage. You are the people to whom God gave the promises, the law, the you know, circumcision, this sign of a covenant. Man, that's an amazing advantage. That's an amazing advantage. But do you think you're more special? <laughs> no. No. Paul wants them to get this out of their mind. This was a, a, a bone of contention inside of the Roman church. There were Jewish people who thought they were more elite. There were also Jews or Gentiles later who thought they were better off because God had brought them in. 
So he draws their attention to the faithfulness of God, and then he says, he humbles them by saying, advantage you have, but you're not better than anybody else. Do you realize the courage that it took to say something like that? You see, Paul had to fight to understand that. Who was Paul? He was a Jew. He was Saul of Tarsus. He was a Jew. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. For him to come to grips with, I'm not any more special than these Gentiles who who Jesus is saving, had to be a gut punch for him. So for him to take on the Jewish believers and say, oh, by the way, you ain't nothing special. That's a pretty, man, that's a pretty bold, uh, bold thing, right? All people, church, all people are a product of the merciful choice of God. All people are. And that choice began before the foundations of the world, Ephesians tells us. In Christ Jesus, you were foreordained to be children of God. Wow, isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? That foreordination speaks of the one who buys you. It doesn't say God knew Tina and God didn't know Barney, although we have that suspicion sometimes. But God, <laughs> so, but the, it just comes to me. It's awesome. Anyway, so it just flows out my face too. So, but the point is, it doesn't mean God, God uh, chose Tina but not Barney. It means that God foreordained our redemption through one instrument, Jesus Christ, and those who would believe in him. So all of this establishes our context for Romans 3, 9 through 18. Now, here's here's a really important thing. All of you here are smarter than most of the scholars that you're going to read on this. There is a use for a scholar. There's a use for a theologian. Please don't think that you can do it all on your own. We need the depth of knowledge and wisdom and insight that people who devote their lives to this have. However, sometimes even they can overshoot the target by a mile, okay? And many scholars have done this. There are many scholars who get this right, but there are many scholars who just miss the boat on this. You know what Paul is saying instinctively. With that context, he says this, what then, are we better than they? Who is Paul talking to? Fellow Jewish believers. Are we better than they? He knows who he belongs to, right? Are we better than they? And says, not at all. Not at all. For we, in the proper sense, as the whole of humanity and the church, we have already charged that both Jew and Greek are all under sin. You could imagine Paul would say, go reread chapter 1, if there were chapter verses there, right? But go reread chapter 1. We've already made the case that all are under sin. And then he says this. He says, uh, not at all, for we have already charged that both Jew and Greek are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. What is Paul saying? We're all sinners. That's as simple as it is, guys. That's as simple as it is. Not only will I show you that context, or have I shown you that context for Romans 3, but when we get into the Old Testament, you're going to see there is nothing like what many scholars present today found in the Old Testament. This is powerful stuff, right? So one, as you can see from the context of chapter 3, Paul is simply saying that mankind is equal across the board. And what makes us equal is we all sinners. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're a sinner. Can you turn, 
Can you, can, you turn, can you turn to your neighbor and say, you're a dirty rotten? No, don't do that one. That was, it's, now we're going a little bit beyond the text, okay? So you're a sinner, and here's the, here's the truth. Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female, you, me, American, foreigner. We're all sinners. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If that wasn't enough context to prove it, we go a few verses later when Paul sums it up in chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 22 and 23. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the point of this. So as I've shared in the passage from 1 Peter, without the context, we can cheat ourselves out of valuable information. But... If we don't have the context, we can also apply biblical phrases in unbiblical ways. We need to be careful not to do what many scholars have done. How many of you know that taking away from the scriptures is prohibited? How many of you know that adding to it is equally prohibited? Yes. We add to it by our read-ins of the Bible, by our read-ins to the verse. We put stuff into the text. When you're studying the Bible, there's a fancy scholarly term. It's called exegesis. It ex, exegesis, to exit out of. We need to be people who read the Bible getting out of it what it says. There's another form called eisegesis. That's where you read into it things you want it to say. There are many, many problems with that, as you know, okay? So we create all these doctrines. One of these doctrines is this doctrine uh, that, that really means... It is often pre- presented as total depravity. It is, it, what it means is total inability. That's what they mean. That's what many people mean by this idea, total inability. It's a doctrine that says what Paul just said here, and I'm going to show you what they're saying. What Paul just said here says no man could seek after God even if he wanted to. No, no man even looks to God. He doesn't even care. It's just he is incapable of doing it, okay? And they use as their justification, there's no one who seeks after God. See, it says it right there. There's no one who seeks after God. Ah, but do you know there's a difference between what you can do and what you do? What you can or cannot do is a matter of its own. But what you do, what humanity has done is a whole different matter. It is faithful to say no one sought after God. It is unfaithful to say they couldn't. How do you know that? How do you know that? Right? That's not what it says here. So, number one is this total inability. So man can't respond to God or even the gospel even if he tried. There's another doctrine that they have to create to support that doctrine. And that is the doctrine that says regeneration must precede faith. God must regenerate you before you can have faith to believe. But it doesn't even stop there. Now, not only, not only can you not choose God, not only does God have to make you alive before you can choose God, but even after being made alive, God has to give you the faith to choose him. Otherwise, you can't do so either. None of this is from the scripture. And yet, they'll show you the scripture says it, right? It's biblical phrases in unintended biblical ways. So what happens is they say things like Romans 12, 1 through 8. To each is given a measure of faith. Study it. Study it. To each is given a measure of faith. It's talking about Christians being a part of one body and operating in their giftings and operating in their, in their spiritual gifts. And Paul says, you should operate in the measure of faith that was given to you for the gift given to you has nothing to do with choosing God. 
So think about this. This doctrine says this. Number one, you, you can't choose God even if you, don't, even if you wanted to because Romans 3 tells you you can't choose God. Number two, regeneration therefore must precede faith. I'm going to post it on the blog this week. I'll give you 15 scriptures that prove the exact opposite. Prove the exact opposite, okay? So you can't choose God even if you wanted to. Regeneration now needs to precede faith. But even those who are regenerated can't necessarily choose God. God has to give them a measure of faith. What that has said is, if God doesn't want you in, you're not in. If God wants you out, that's all there is to it. And guess what? There's a proof that jumps on top of that. They use Romans to prove it too, and they say, who are you, O man, to tell the potter what he can and cannot do? All again, massively, massively out of context. Now listen, some of you know these fights, some of you know these theological discussions, and I'm not telling you to take my word for it specifically. I am telling you that there's an entire half of the Christian world that disagrees with those ideas I just presented to you. They disagree. They say that's not true. We choose what God presents himself and we choose, right? We respond in faith. So I know some of this is like, that's way too heady for me, Nathan. I don't care. Well, I do care and I'm a dork. So anyway, so that's that. So you can see the context from Romans 3. If that wasn't enough, let me take you to the Old Testament. I'll prove it to you again. Now we move uh, to the, each Old Testament passage that is communicated here. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. We should probably ask what, what David meant when he was referring to people. Both Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 qu are quoted here, okay? So Psalm 14, Psalm 53, write that down. David communicates that the whole world has become foolish. The manifestation of that foolish is not that people didn't have an ability to choose God. They chose not to. Both the world, both the heathen, the pagan, and the Jew, they had all turned aside, okay? Follow me through in Psalm 53, verses 1 through 6. For the choir director, according to the Mahalath, a mascal of David, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Okay? We all, do we agree with that? By the way, David is not talking about atheists right now. He's even talking about theists who have said there is no God. They are corrupt, all men, they are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. Oh, wow, that's pretty brutal. What does he mean by that? There is no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Stop there, underlined it. Do you know what it means to turn aside? Yeah, it means you were heading on a path, doesn't it? You were heading in a direction, and to turn aside meant that you veered from the path. You had the ability to veer from the path. You also had the ability to walk on the path. That's why you were there to turn aside, right? He says, they have turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. That's all mankind has become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Have the workers of wickedness no knowledge? So now Paul goes straight to the heathen, okay? And he says how they have not sought after God. It's because they didn't believe in him, right? He says, the workers of wickedness, have they no knowledge? They should. 
I've made it abundantly clear to them. I've shown them in the skies, in the stars, in creation. We read that in Romans 1 as well. He says, have they no knowledge, these people who eat up my people as though they eat bread? Do they not know I am the God of justice? They don't seek me. They don't seek me. Are, are they that brash that they would chew up my people like they're chewing up bread? Think about what you would do. Like, if somebody mistreated my daughter, I'm going to use this line. It's perfect, right? Who do you think you are that you're messing with my daughter? Chewing her up like you're eating bread. You're going to die. That's what I'm going to say, right? Right? Do you not fear me? Do you not fear? Do you not know who I am? I have a special set of skills. Anyway, okay, so do you not know who I am? This is, this is a problem. This is what God is saying to the world. But listen to what God says to his own people. To God's own people, right? Um, so they had uh, eaten them like bread or devoured them like bread. Where was I at? Sorry. Verse 4, ah, have the workers of wickedness no knowledge who eat my people up as though they are bread? And then look at this, and have not called upon God? Have they not called upon God? Of course they haven't. They don't believe. But look at the Jew. There they were, the Jew, in great fear where no fear had been. Before, what does that communicate? Before they walked in assurance that God was going to protect them, Right? God's going to protect me. And then all of a sudden, there's fear where before no fear had been. Where no fear had been. For God scattered the bones of him who encamped against you. This is David saying to the people, God has scattered your enemy time and time again. And now you're shaking in your boots? Do you know what fear communicates? It communicates you don't trust God. It communicates you don't think God is there for you. It communicates you don't seek him. You're too worried about what's going on in your life. Just a quick kind of aside. Re the reason God tells us to cast our anxieties on him, the reason he's called us to cast our anxieties is because anxiety prevents us from running to him when life is hard. We tend to see the pain and the anxiety, and we don't run to God. And guess who those people are? Those who don't seek after God. It's not that they had no ability to seek after God. It's just that they didn't because their fear had overwhelmed them. He says, who, the, do you not know that God scatters those who have camped against you? You put them to shame because God had rejected them. And listen to this cry of David. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of my own people. Gosh, I wish they would just call on me. How many of you, show of hands, say one of your greatest weaknesses is in pain, in times of anxiety, the last thing you do is call upon God. It becomes your last resort instead of your first step. God wants salvation to come out of his people. And that comes out of his people by his people saying, help, I need your help. It's not that they couldn't seek after God. It's that they didn't. Further proof of this. Further proof of this. David says they didn't seek. Psalm 3410, Psalm 4016, and Psalm 631 all say God rewards those who seek him. Written by David himself. So, so this modern doctrine that you can't seek God, nobody seeks God, doesn't matter what you do, you can't do it. Well, it contradicts the Bible. So where are we going to go with this? What we ought to do is throw it away, but <laughs> whatever. I mean, I've got an uphill battle ahead of me there. 
So there's one context. The next one is verse 13 and 14. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Psalm 5, 9, and 143 uh, show this. They say there is nothing reliable in, the, uh, in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. They flatter with their tongue. I'm going to wrap this up quick. I'm sorry. They sharpen their tongues as a serpent. Poison of a viper is under their lips. Selah. See, the fool of verses 10 and 12 has now believed it in their heart and it has taken over their mind and it is starting to come out their mouth. So what happens to all of us, guys, that don't seek God, that choose not to seek God, is that that fear takes over. We're marked as fools. In that foolishness, what happens is our heart becomes identified with that foolishness, our mind becomes identified with that foolishness, and the things that we speak end up being curses towards God, curses towards men. It's all found in James, right? With the, with the tongue, we, we speak life and we also speak death. May it never be. May it never be. This is what we do. So when Paul, context, when Paul says their throat is an open grave, their tongues they keep deceiving, the poison of asps is under their lips, that's what had happened to the people of God and all the people of the world. They had started spewing, uh, spewing hatred. Guys, I, I don't know if, if you like me picking on these kinds of things, but this is where our world is going right now. We start with saying there is no God. We remove him from everything that we have. We declare there is no God. The next thing is it takes over our hearts and our minds, and then hate speech fills the world. We hate each other. We won't listen to each other. We backbite. Guess what the next step is? We start hurting each other. Romans 3, 15 through 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. This comes from Isaiah chapter 59, verses 7 through 8. I'll, I'll trust you to, to go to the context there. And then Paul concludes by saying, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Do you want to know what was happening in Romans 3? Paul simply said what we all know deep down in our heart. There's no one who seeks after God. There's no one righteous. All people need mercy. All of you. All of us. We all need mercy. We weren't working our way there through the law, the Jew, and the Gentile wasn't even, God wasn't even on the radar, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And under that universal truth, God says, there's only one option. You accept my mercy or it ends. You accept my mercy or justice is coming. Isn't that a powerful reality? Isn't that a powerful reality? Romans 3 leads us to this place that says, here's the great humbling factor of all of this. Ain't nobody in this place that's better than the other person. We were all saved by mercy. How should that impact our travels out into the world, our influence in the world? We still don't celebrate unrighteousness. We still don't live and let live in that perverted sense. But instead, we go, we minister, and we call people regardless of their race, creed, or color, we go to them and we love them because God first loved us. He saved a bunch of messes, amen? He saved a bunch of people who, although we could seek him, we chose not to. We said, forget you, Lord. We're gonna do it our own way. In Romans 3, 9 through 18, the context is 
that all men, Jew, Greek, everybody, are violent, ungodly fools in need of mercy. We've all revealed this in different ways, whether you've hated your brother in your heart or you've actually committed murder. Whether you have looked on a woman lustfully or you've committed adultery physically. We've all declared we didn't seek after God, we didn't care. We just ran the other direction. God's gospel call is, please come to me. Oh, that salvation would come through his church. Oh, that salvation would come through his people. This is the message of Romans 3. This is what Paul is pointing out. And context makes it so we understand it. Context helps us to actually get to the point. So here's my challenge for you as you go throughout your day and you study God's word this week. I want to encourage you, if you read something and it seems too good to be true, maybe. It seems like, man, that doesn't, that doesn't talk about the righteousness of God in any way. It doesn't talk about, about the love of God and the righteousness of God. There's a chance you're reading it wrong. There's a chance you haven't read enough of it. Trust me, trust me, church. Pastors left and right, especially those who, who uh, rah-rah and get you all riled up, they, can, they preach things oftentimes that are biblical words in an unbiblical way. And we have got to be careful about these things because then we're living completely foreign lives. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.